Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of GUcast. This is Declan Murphy, urologist here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Back in our studio, Renew. We haven't been in here for a while, have it's we? It's fantastic to be back yeah. and it uh, looks a bit different, Declan. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> did. We put a few lights in. If you look at that camera, you'll see... We're yeah, raising the game a little bit. Um, yeah, part, part of our par- partnership program we spoke about recently. We Absolutely. got more funding to invest in our kit and uh, hopefully do a nice job bringing you some high quality um, audio video production as well yeah. as uh, hopefully some great content. We're certainly going to have good content. And today, and you know so much more important because now we've got guests in studio. Yes, yeah. Back to face to face. That long couple Amazing. of years, just you and yeah, me sitting here with people on Zoom. Five in the morning, you know, nothing but a coffee and yeah. Yeah, and so That's we're back. Good. Studio guests, international guests uh, <laughs> yes, in studio uh, today. So uh, yeah, and we're going to talk about prostate cancer today. I know we talk a lot about prostate cancer, and and uh, uh, it is a fast-moving topic. It's one of our favorite topics. But we got a lot of non-prostate cancer actually coming in the next few episodes. Yeah. But today we're going to have a superb, quick update for those of you listening to the podcast on the way to work, or when you're out for exercise, or wherever you do listen to your podcast. We're going to give you some great key messages on metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer and CRPC from two of our fantastic guests at Renewal. Now, tell us about. Absolutely. So, um, you know, the, the Prospect Tour is on at the moment, which is, you know, it's a fantastic educational tour and it's uh, it's been running for many years, uh, Declan, and we always enjoy it. And, and we've got two fantastic international guests here on their debut tour of Australia, Whirlwind Tour. <laughs> so uh, let me introduce them. So we've got Dr. Tian Zhang. Um, who's a GU medical oncologist at UT Southwestern uh, in Dallas, Texas. Welcome, Tian. Great to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And we've got Dr. Rahul Agarwal uh, and, and another medical oncologist, uh, this time from UCSF, my old fellowship stomping grounds. Great to see you, Rahul. Yes, it's great to be here. So you guys came, what, like two days ago? You're leaving tomorrow? Yeah, <laughs> quick right. whirlwind tour. <laughs> and all you've seen is a little bit of cold weather in Melbourne. <laughs> and fantastic colleagues. <laughs> you're very good well we're thrilled to have you and you guys gave a great talk um at a, a meeting last night and um and we were thrilled to welcome you to peter mac this morning it's you're been welcome. great to be here it's just a fantastic place and how's australia rahul first trip to australia first trip to australia we got a little bit of sun in sydney yesterday saw the opera house and or two days ago and then uh saw the art museum in uh in melbourne here yesterday so it's been great Fantastic. And, you know, they're off to Brisbane today. Uh, you guys are off to Brisbane and then back to the, the US uh, the day after. And they don't even have time to buy Tim Tams and Caramellos. So we bought what, that for them yes. and put it in a little care package with all yes. our UCAS yes. stuff. The least we can do, give you a little <laughs> goodie bag to bring back to the kids, uh, Tian and, and Rahul. Yeah, no, Australia looks amazing. Uh, we wish we had more time here. Yeah. yeah. Well, come you'll back. have to come back. And bring, right. the, bring the family. Bring the family. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's great because I think, you know, we, we've focused a lot of attention in the in the past few weeks on MCRPC and NMCRPC and um, it's been great to have these guys around um, and now also focusing a little bit on metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer and it's all about, you know, treatment intensification up front. Um, that's, certainly messages. The, that's certainly the theme. And we, what we've asked uh, Rahul and Tian to do as best they can, they did each a separate talk on this speaker tour on metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer and on MCRPC. And I really like the way that they kind of, you know, there's so much data, there's so much fast move. They gave us some simple messages, some stuff to watch for in 2022. So that's what we've challenged them to talk a bit about uh, today yeah. is give us, for our listeners, for our listeners who have short term uh, attention spans like myself, uh, some key messages. Um, <laughs> well, so we love top five points. So, I know, we uh, love that. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to, to know 
know about in this space. So I think it's important to, to get these updates from these guys. So Rahul, shall we start with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer? And you did a fantastic talk last night. But if I had to ask you to talk about three key things, three things that are of most interest or that are fast moving or that are have changed practice, are yeah. changing practice. Um, can you give us some highlights? Yeah, I mean, I think that now with the, the number of studies we have, I think, you know, really intensification of ADT should really be offered to all metastatic hormone sensitive patients. And yet we're not seeing the kind of uptake that we would like. So I think clearly the message is ADT plus and AR targeted therapy should be the standard of care for all metastatic hormone-sensitive patients. It's such an important message, but the reason you made that comment is because you spoke last night about how the real-world data is still showing that a very low number of people uh, in environments where there is access to even docetaxel or some sort of AR patch are are not getting combination approaches. And so if you take out the lack of access or um, reimbursement, etc., there still leaves a gulf of patients who are out there getting a script for ADT, alone and being sent off, come back in three months with a PSA. So yeah. that, that's a problem, isn't it? That's absolutely right. You know, that hopefully we'll see that gap narrow over time. But, you know, abiraterone has been available in the U.S. for a long time. And, you know, we're still seeing those kinds of gaps and, and those need to be filled for sure. Yeah. And we see that a lot too, which is a shame, isn't it, Declan? Because, you know, prostate cancer is a lethal disease. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have the, the impression that we'll just use ADT up front and save these drugs for when they become more resistant later down the track. But we've really got to give our best drugs first. And because that's what always used to happen. That, that's what us urologists always did. Just mm. start the ADT or bicalutamide, add it in, whatever. And then when they become castration resistant, or worse, we used to wait till they were symptomatic castration resistant yeah. uh, before they'd get sent on. So it's still, you know, five, six, seven years after data started coming out showing combination approaches while they're hormone sensitive is going to improve their survival. That it, We still need to keep hammering that message. Mm. But um, but I think, uh, Tian, on, on that topic of hormone sensitive, the AR pathway inhibitors are now becoming more available. And here in Australia, uh, we're in a period where where we're about to uh, actually only for the first time get a- access soon to uh, AR pathway inhibitor um, with apalutamide being recommended for reimbursement. It'll be a few months before it uh, trickles through. But do you think that will be uh, an opportunity to help close that gap on the number of men who should be getting a combination approach if countries like Australia and others around the world are getting access to safe, well-tolerated uh, drugs like apalutamide and, and other AR pathway inhibitors? Yeah, I, I sure hope so. Um, and the data that Rahul was referring to was actually from the U.S., right? So we've yeah. actually had access to multiple um, AR inhibitors, abiraterone, docetaxel in the frontline space. And, um, you know, the uptake there, um, I don't know if it's because we're just not quite in the realm of changing practice patterns. People are so stuck in their behaviors or um, uh, hopefully as you do get a newly approved, newly funded um, option here in the Australia that you see more use of apalutamide and other AR targeted agents in the upfront metastatic hormone sensitive setting. Um, but I, I still f- I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that the uptake hasn't been what it um, should be. Yeah, now we talked about that last night, the fact that uh, it's not just urologists at fault. Uh, 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 Niraj Agarwal had shown at ASCO this mm-hmm. year looking at uh, practice patterns in the U.S. Yeah. with Abby available that, yes, the utilization rates in urologists is low, but it's also not super high in, in general medical oncology in the U.S. So yeah. it'll work to do. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and uh, I think hopefully we'll see that change here. We've published that data from Australia uh, separately and uh, just published a review in Nature Urology with Aruna Zad, who was chairing your meeting last night. And um, work to do. Let's hope we're looking back in a year or two on that. So that's combination approaches. If you're out there listening and you're starting ADT on a patient today, 
please, 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 uh, if you have access to some sort of approach, and everyone should have access to docetaxel, consider that. Refer on for an opinion if you're a urologist uh, and so on. Uh, so please, please, combination approaches. Um, uh, and yeah. and the, I mean, the docetaxel thing is interesting, isn't it? Because Tian, I was going to ask you, you know, well, now that these AR-targeted therapies are being being approved in the in the upfront sort of metastatic hormone-sensitive space, now it's in Australia with apalutamide being approved, do you think we're going to see docetaxel taxel being pushed away uh, out of the hormone-sensitive setting and into maybe the later stages? Yeah, and um, you know, Rahul presented the charted data really nicely. I think it does depend on patient selection of who might benefit from docetaxel upfront. Uh, we now also have data from Aerosins um, that you know perhaps we also add AR-targeted agents with darolutamide to ADT and docetaxel for select patients. Um, and you know those patients who are chemo eligible, who are younger maybe, and who have maybe a little less AR-dependent disease, um, I do think they still need to. Think about um, chemo, docetaxel, sort of a um, uh, polyclonal approach up front um, so that uh, we can get to um, minimizing tumor burden. Um, so, so I think there's still a, a utility for docetaxel up front. It's just a matter of patient selection. Yeah. And I think you're kind of saying perhaps in a triplet sense, uh, uh, which I, I think is important, isn't it, Arisens and Peace One, but it'll be a minority of patients. We, if we can't do doublet, we definitely can't do triplet. So I think our message this year has to be to keep banging home the message on the vast majority of men who need to have some doublet, and hopefully that'll be AR pathway inhibitor. So anything else, uh, Rahul? That's one. We got the message. Combination <laughs> approaches. You know, Combination is, should, is important. Exactly. What yeah. else? I mean, I think that the choice of AR pathway inhibitors really comes down to availability, comorbidities of the patients. We, you know, we're lucky in the U.S. that we have all the agents available. The hazard ratios for these studies all look about the same, and so it really comes down to you know, comorbidity, what's available, what's the financial toxicity. And so, you know, the choice matters for patients. These patients, you know, can stay on these agents for a long time. And so that financial toxicity piece is important in the U.S. as we sort of think about which op, which agent to choose in the setting. Any other observations on, on which agent? How do, how do you make that decision? I mean, clearly there can be patient-related stuff if you don't want to start steroids or they've had a history of falls or seizures, specific things, but... All else being equal, if you have a relatively fit patient, how do you pick? Um, yeah, it comes down to probably habit and, you know, what are you used to? I mean, we we do tend to sometimes sequence patients from Abby to an AR antagonist in the CRPC setting. So our sort of default choice tends to be abiraterone. And if there's a reason not to use steroids or CHF or some of the reason we may not want to give abiraterone, then we'll choose a different agent. But that tends to be our default. You know, sometimes I tell patients that um, the best pill is the pill they can actually get in their hands and in their mouths. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, it, anyone that is actually affordable and that the patient can actually um, obtain um, is the right one for them. Um, so, yes, we look at comorbidities, but, um, you know, it's a it's a matter of uh, financial costs uh, out of pocket for patients as well. Um, so I know there's a huge uh, emphasis on um, uh, health um, quality and um, uh, financial risks uh, here in Australia, but it's certainly also the case um, in the U.S. of uh, copay costs and whether or not a patient is able to afford the oral treatments. Fantastic. Fantastic. That was point two. Imaging. Uh, You've just stepped out of an <laughs> MDT tumor board meeting at Peter Mac. There's a lot of pet ha imaging happens around Australia, isn't there? So the, the staging of the newly diagnosed metastatic hormone-sensitive patient, uh, now you have pet imaging in the U.S., uh, is it straight to PET for, you know, you're all just diagnosed the patient, PSA is 17, grade group 4, cancer, fit-looking 71-year-old. Is it straight to PSMA PET nowadays, or is it still conventional imaging? 
In terms of what's currently done, I'd say it's still a pretty large percentage get conventional imaging in the U.S. I think there is now prospective data in terms of the PSMA PET and, and initial staging, and I think it does impact management, both for the upfront surgery as well as the salvage radiation that may follow. So I think it certainly makes a lot of sense. Access, availability, affordability for patients, I think is all still issues to be worked on. But I think there's a lot of rationale to add in staging with PET uh, for the high-risk uh, newly diagnosed patients. Is access an issue, Tien? Have you access to PSMA um, PET for a new staging? Actually, well, uh, where I am at UC Southwestern, we actually do have an IND in place. And so we've been um, doing gallium pet, uh, PSMA PETs um, in the high-risk localized biochemical recurrence. And then now uh, for patients who are potentially uh, thinking about lutetium in the refractory CRPC space. Um, but in big swaths um, of the U.S., I, I believe there's still a bit of a... Um, uh, a lag in in terms of access to PSMA pets. Um, it's getting better with um, Polarify um, and other agents, but um, uh, many patients still don't uh, get PSMA pets up front. And you also see insurance uh, mm -hmm. authorizations be an issue. Even in the biochemical recurrence setting, you still have insurance companies say you need negative conventional imaging first, and only then will we approve the PET. So it just ends up being a bit of a battle to really get these scans for, for patients that might benefit from them. I want to say about that, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because we've just lived with it, and but sometimes it can be very confusing. And the reason we talk about this in the context of metastatic hormone sensitive is because a lot of these patients will have negative staging, conventional right. staging, but then you do a PET scan, you see retroperitoneal lymph nodes, now they're metastatic. Do you change the management? It's We've been battling this for like eight, nine years now, the yeah. what to do with this. So. I think because there isn't the widespread utilization yet, you haven't been faced with this conundrum that we see. This all is the a problem time. of our own making. It's yeah. <laughs> right. staging stage and what do you do? Well, well, it's interesting because last night in your talk, um, uh, uh, you talked about um, yeah upstaging uh, with PET. But you know, if, if Michael Michael Hoffman just gave you a tour around the building, but if Michael okay. was here, he said, no, it's correct staging. It, it's not it's not upstaging. It's it's correct staging. And so uh, you know that that's his view, his pedantic view on it. I mean, these are real things. There, you just don't see them on conventional imaging. Now, the challenge for us clinicians then is the management it's impact of yeah. the correct staging. And, right. um, and it's not always upstaging is the other thing. We, we In Pro-PSMA, we also reported, of course, the false positive bone scans mm -hmm. being correctly staged mm -hmm. and then the patient being correctly staged as localized. So it goes both ways, but um, uh, accuracy is is, uh, is what uh, Pro-PSMA was set out to determine both up, up, you know, both false positives, false negatives. So right. Um, but, you know, our trials, right, for high-risk localized disease were done in the setting of conventional imaging. Um, and so our M0 CRPC trials. And so, um, you know, do you throw away the data um, uh, for the accurate, correct staging, or do you still treat um, and, and then do prospective trials um, with PSMA PET um, uh, staged cancers? And so I, I think... Um, in lack of prospective data, we um, we try to still um, do as best we can with the data that we have um, to determine management. But I'm I'm sure that when a patient sees you know a retroperitoneal lymph node or a bone lesion on a PSMA PET, that they're asking for further intensification of treatment. Uh, we're sort of in a position where sometimes, you know, it, in, when that patient develops uh, NMCRPC, you know, we sort of have to backtrack and do the CT and bone scan to, to see if they are, in fact, eligible for the mm, that's early interesting. To get, to get access to the systemic yeah. therapy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't think it's going to be fixed, that problem, because it's not easy to, like, redo 
localized prostate cancer trials because it takes right. years and yeah. years and years. Yes. So it'll never actually be fixed. And, exactly. And you know what? It, it still comes up, of course, in KOL meetings at APCCC this year. Um, uh, Nicola Mate, our friend Nicola, who chairs the EAU Prostate Cancer Guideline Committee, you know, hammered home this point. We do need the data to show the management impact improves outcomes. But you know, the problem is that's eight, ten, twelve, fourteen never happen, won't happen. So instead, we have to find a way of integrating the the novel imaging, the the, the more accurate imaging, into clinical practice to try and make sure we are making making decisions in the patient's best interest and i suppose with increasing availability in the us in particular then psma pet can be built into trials a little bit easier it won't be as much of a barrier but uh, we can't wait the trains left the station as we like to say and we just we can't just ignore the correct imaging we'll have to just embrace it in practice to see can we make sure we make right decisions for our patients but um, i agree with your comment you know if a patient sees the avid lesion in the bone met they'll say well, why why do you want to take out my prostate doctor is that the right thing to do you know i have cancer up here in my spine um etc yeah. The other thing we often discuss, Declan, is, you know, who should be in charge of administering these treatments? Um, <laughs> oh, here we go. You know, it's, it's, it's a favourite topic because, uh, you know, as urologists, we're often the gatekeepers of many of these patients. You know, we've e- they either come to us or we've treated their primary prostate cancer and then they develop metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And now, you know, these AR-targeted therapies, they're, they're quite easy to prescribe, aren't they? You know, the, any, we can actually do it it's it seems feasible um and it's sort of at the point of when we think about chemotherapy that we often refer off to medical oncologists what are your thoughts and what happens in your institutions tian yeah so practice patterns probably change by institutions um just like they do here in australia probably and um in in our institution um our patients with metastatic prostate cancers um will be referred over um i i think that uh, in a in a space where we have psma positive disease um, we're often thinking multi disciplinary uh, approaches and um, still uh, integrating radiation oncology and uh, our urologists. Um, but in the, the space of um, how do we, um, uh, you know, who is responsible for giving those treatments, I think uh, the person who is able to speak well to side effect profiles and to manage the toxicity um, should be the one who, um, you know, continues to take care of the patient. So as long as the patient is, um, you know, getting their side effects um, taken well managed and taken care of, um, that's that's the right clinician um, who's uh, who's following along. And, and in the U.S., we have um, multiple... Uh, large urology practices, for example, that um, are giving systemic treatments. And so um, I just hope at, uh, at any point, um, any clinician who is proscribing um, is also able to manage the side effects. It's a good point. And we had Fred Sad here last week, and the comment he made to us for new was, and he was more talking about M0CRPC, but again, using AR pathway inhibitors, don't dabble, he said, don't dabble, you know, don't be a dabbler in this. You know, either, either commit yourself to this yeah. disease area, looking after these lovely patients and understanding your choice of options and how to safely initiate and safely manage those patients. Don't dabble. So, yeah, I think that's your point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we're fortunate in big institutions because we work within a multidisciplinary team and, you know, these patients are presented at tumour board or multidisciplinary mm-hmm. meetings and, and these things will be discussed. I mean, the concern is the, the community urologist mm-hmm. who holds on to a patient for many, many years and, um, you know, that uh, who... And, maybe not aware or not comfortable with, with this, these sorts of prescribing patterns, um, you know, what happens to those patients is, is really the concern. Yeah, a- absolutely. And that feeds into just the lack of use of, of doublet therapy in the hormone-sensitive setting. So if it not comfortable, then refer. If you are comfortable, then use these agents and, and follow the patients appropriately. Superb. Okay, Renu, that's half of it. That's half of it. I th- <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it's uh, So I think that was hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Yeah. So metastatic CRPC, CRPC. Tien, uh, 
uh, some highlights, three highlights. Very confusing area. Um, it moved so quickly. And it's interesting, the era that we're coming into now, which will be almost the era when I think we're in the era where Dossie Taxel has been given up front quite a bit now, but it's probably going to get pushed right back to the queue. I'm reckoning, I'm reckoning in four or five years' time, everyone's going to have had an AR pathway inhibitor up front, almost everybody. But current current uh, practices, current highlights. Um, sure. CRPC. I think yesterday we talked a lot about the treatment landscape, right, and the uh, available options. Um, but in the last two years, we also have added to that armamentarium with um, both PARP inhibitors in 2020 and then um, uh, just this year with lutetium PSMA uh, 617. Um, and now it's approved in the U.S. Um, and so we ha- spent a lot of time talking about the therapy um, uh, data that you all have generated uh, very nicely here um, in uh, in Australia, and then also the registrational vision trial um, that we had open in the U.S. and that I had patients on. Um, and so with the lutetium as a novel agent, um, you know, I think it's all a lot also about patient selection. Um, so uh, the careful PET imaging um, and SUV cutoffs uh, of 10 um, that was done through the therapy study, um, I thought was really um, informative and for us um, to find the right patients um, that might respond to lutetium. Um, I think also um, the FDG uh, AVID patients um, who uh, may have more neuroendocrine-like, less AR dependence, um, those patients are very poor risk prognosis, and uh, those patients um, uh, perform an unmet need still um, that uh, PSMA lutetium is not uh, a good agent for. So, um, you know, we're, we're still in a, a bit of a pattern in terms of treatment selection in MCRPC and um, thinking through uh, disease heterogeneity. So I think I covered three points. Uh, lutetium, <laughs> new PARP inhibitors, and then um, obviously it's important to understand resistance mechanisms and uh, the disease heterogeneity and MCRPC. Yeah. Yeah, well done. And um, the, you've, you mentioned last night that as we sit here in August 2022, there are supply and access issues in the US. So although uh, Lutetium PSMA has been FDA approved for a few months now, four or five months, there are still ongoing access issues. Is that still... That's case. right. Unfortunately, yes. Um, so there are some expanded access programs, um, and then as sites are getting onboarded um, to the Novartis sort of map, um, uh, the patients are uh, now being selected and um, and and sent in for um, PSMA lutetium. Uh, but the uh, demand is quite significant, and it's uh, approved in a in a setting right post AR targeted therapy post taxanes where um, these patients are quite refractory to other treatments and. Um, we really need um, uh, it's critical for them to access lutetium uh, which is we know is a life prolonging agent um, in that setting and um, and uh, they don't have very many options yeah it's interesting isn't it because again I think things are a little bit different in Australia um, you know access is a, is a little bit more straightforward and even, even if patients pay out of pocket the, the costs are a, a lot less um, and it sort of does raise concerns about patients and we saw a good example this morning of a patient who responds well to lutetium PSMA and then what do you do after the you know the six cycles that are recommended um, what's your experience at, at UCSF Rahul? Yeah so we've had I mean we have had a little bit better luck than average in terms of getting access to lutetium. So we've been able to dose with Pluvicto for the last couple of months. Um, Demand is so pent up, though, that Mm. you just can't nearly treat the number of patients that would qualify, you know, per the vision criteria. So we are having to be pretty selective. And it does put a lot of burden on our nuke med folks to have a pool of 10 patients, maybe only three of which could get scheduled in a given month's period of time. And so 
there's a lot of challenge in sort of picking those right patients. And now we're finding that as they're coming up for their second dose and third dose, the scheduling and the logistics is not easy. So I think the ramp up time is going to take quite a long time for sites in the U.S. to really start treating at high volume. Um, in terms of treating beyond six cycles, we haven't really been, you know, sort of had the luxury of being able to do that. I will say it's a sort of a very select group of patients that really has that well of responsive disease that can tolerate, you know, beyond that many cycles and still maintain good blood counts and so forth. But it'll be interesting to see how the real world data looks a couple of years from now in the U.S. You got a bit of a snapshot this morning, didn't you, with in our tumor board? There was yeah. one patient who was on his 14th cycle, 14th, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And he'd been on therapy, but he's on and off. He goes, and he's still yeah. responsive, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. a couple of cycles on and off, and he's still working, he's yeah. active, and so it is interesting, and yeah. I suppose those real-world experiences will feed back in. He's in yeah. a, a prospective registry yeah. uh, and still has other options up his sleeve. He still has cabazitaxel. Yeah. But I think the pent-up demand is part of the big issue because, of course, these MCRPCs were waiting around a while, you know, you do, yeah. you do, you do have a bunch of them uh, waiting for an approval. So I think it'll, it'll settle down, won't it? It'll settle down when the pent-up demand goes and then when the supply logistics issues that Novartis have had will improve. So I'm sure well, this time next year yeah. it'll be... I hope, uh, hope it'll um, improve um, significantly because we certainly have patients waiting um, and uh, ready to receive treatment. And it's good to good to know that there are these options out there because I think uh, sometimes the reservation of using these AR targeted therapies up front is well when these patients progress you run out of options, but there are options and it, and it's again we know there's a survival benefit in giving these drugs uh, you know earlier. Absolutely. And, and speaking of earlier, do you you know so we have trials of course underway with lutetium in the uh, in the earlier setting, Tian. So what's your your gut sense on where we'll be in in a couple of years' time with where lutetium will be? Sure. Uh, well, we have um, a couple of trials now with PSMA4, PSMA addition that are using uh, lutetium earlier, um, even for metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And uh, you all have um, a lutetectomy, right, uh, that uh, you're giving neoadjuvant uh, lutetium. So um, it's fascinating to me that uh, novel agents can be moved um, earlier in disease settings and hopefully show a benefit earlier um, so that uh, we can optimize um, sort of longevity of patients. Uh, but we talked a little bit yesterday, too, that, um, you know, any given trial, we're looking at patient populations. But when we're using these treatments in sequence, um, these patients can actually live quite a long time with prostate cancer. So that's what I'm hopeful for, is that we can figure out the right patients to treat and sequence them um, rationally um, and, and uh, help patients live longer and better. Live longer and better. You showed like an that. amazing case example last night, a patient of yours, you, for 19 years, he was diagnosed in his 50s with metastatic disease, and he's well and active. So it's more like a chronic disease, as you said last night. But I think that's where balancing quality of life for these patients, financial mm -hmm. toxicity, and gosh, the cost to, to society, because we have fantastic life-prolonging therapies. But um, That's uh, right. And he has seen every single agent, uh, and was one of our patients on the vision trial, um, and uh, has benefited from all the life-prolonging treatments. And so um, hopefully there will be more patients like him um, that uh, you know can sequence um, uh, these treatments well and, um, and still able to live uh, a full and happy life. So PARP inhibitors, you spoke about PARP inhibitors last night. Of course, that it is very exciting to have uh, molecularly selected therapy available for MCRPC patients. So but one of the big challenges in, is in identifying the patients based on archival tumor tissue. Um, so these patients, whether it's sort of a more liberal a mutation as you have in the US or more specific like BRCA1, BRCA2, either way you need to prove that, either germline or somatic. So that's very challenging, isn't it? And, you, you know, uh, ctDNAs are a big interest of yours, I know as well, but is that going to help us with the archival tissue problem or not? Or 
Yeah, I mean, I think if the archival tissue is um, you know uh, within an, a year or two, it's still fresh enough um, to do um, uh, NGS testing on. Um, uh, but for my purposes, when we see treatment resistance and um, cancer growing despite our ongoing treatments, um, I, I find the circulating tumor DNA um, is easier uh, as a peripheral blood draw to send off um, quickly. And so um, there are certainly patients who um, we can find their uh, BRCA1, 2, ATM um, alterations on circulating tumor DNA. Uh, we can also find uh, microsatellite instability and high tumor mutational burden on uh, circulating tumor DNA. So um, it offers in the very select patient population, it's probably a minority, of course, um, but the opportunity to see a different agent uh, and different treatment options. Um, so in my practice, um, I, I do send uh, circulating tumor DNA. Your favorite topic, Declan? <laughs> yeah, and we'll <laughs> we come back to you in a minute. But we, the last one I want to ask about Rahul, uh, that we talked about last night, but in, in prostate cancer news this week, you know, yet another negative IO trial in prostate <laughs> cancer. Keynote 921 gets announced to the stock market, yet another failure. Uh, I'm going to be very harsh on this, but, you know, it joins the large graveyard of trials of IO in metastatic prostate cancer. Um, and I appealed on Twitter to the GU on community this week to please stop doing these in unselected uh, patients. Um, so, you know, being deliberately harsh, but isn't this mostly driven by the IO industry who just wants to land the jackpot of very wide utilization in prostate cancer? Or, Well, I think, you know, with a checkpoint inhibitor, certainly, you know, you could go into those studies with a good degree of skepticism. I mean, there was phase two data with Pembro plus docetaxel, but it was non-randomized phase two study that led to a very large phase three trial. And so, you know, in some sense, you know, you're seeing a signal there in the phase two study that the PFS looked pretty good, but it's in a non-randomized fashion. So um, given how immunologically cold the tumor is to just throw a checkpoint inhibitor in unselected patient population, I mean, clearly as a field, we need to move beyond that. That being said, I'd hesitate to kind of lump all IO in together along with the checkpoint inhibitors. And I think, although early, you know, there are some novel immunotherapy approaches that are showing some promise, the, the bispecifics and CAR T cells, whether those are really adaptable and, and be treating a broad swath of CRPC patients remains to be seen. These, these drugs can be pretty toxic, but um, I think there's still more to learn with immunotherapy. So I wouldn't necessarily say we should give up on it as a whole in the field, uh, but we need to move beyond the checkpoint inhibitors. <sighs> uh, <laughs> I, we're going to have a podcast in a few weeks yeah. about this. I've invited uh, Morgan Rupre, uh, a colleague of ours <laughs> in Paris, who again was you know, mouthing off on Twitter this week about it as well. Please stop doing this. doesn't work. I saw him doing it a few weeks ago as well. So. Yeah. But in um, select but yes, patients, uh, yeah, I, okay. you know, and, and there <laughs> can be uh, tremendous responses. Exactly. So yeah. that's the point, isn't it? You know, the unselectedness of it. But you did show a a beautiful example. Yeah. So we, we invited uh, Tian and Rahul to our tumor board this morning. So we had some great cases and they gave us great comments. And then uh, Tian couldn't resist. She, she introduced a case. She showed us a case um, kind of in defense of my rant about uh, please give up on IO. But do you want to just tell us that case? Because it does tell it does tell us that there is, a of course, a small group of patients if you identify them correctly. Yeah, long story short, this patient um, presented uh, with uh, castration-resistant prostate cancer metastatic to bones uh, within four months of his initial diagnosis and um, had a PSA of 60 when we st um, saw him in February. Um, he, I sent off his ctDNA results and uh, it was microsatellite high with a tumor mutational burden that was as high as I've ever seen, 109 mutations per megabase. And uh, we started pembrolizumab. Um, and within uh, half 
a cycle. A week later, he, his PSA dropped to 30. Within one cycle, his PSA dropped to 1.9. Um, and uh, on bone scan, his uh, bone lesions all decreased in uptake. Um, and by cycle three, he was starting to have some headaches um, and rashes. And so we held after cycle four, but PSA undetectable um, and, you know, just a tremendous response. And I'm really hoping that response will be durable. So very small patient population. Um, but when we find those pearls, you know, it it will be helpful for those patients. Um, and so I, I do think it's a patient selection and how we're designing uh, these trials. Uh, and in certainly an unselected patient population, I'm not an advocate. But, it, um, you know, wouldn't you hate to miss that patient that uh, has microcyllate instability um, who might benefit? I mean, it's such an unusual case for so many reasons in that he, you know, he became cassette resistant so soon after starting his treatment and the, the degree of microsatellite instability was so high, which is so unusual for prostate cancer. And, and I guess it's those very select patients that perhaps have a chance of responding like that. This is the problem for the industry, though, because they're not common, those mm. patients. So if you need to design a trial where you only identify those patients, it's a small select number of patients. But maybe that is the answer. But our industry really interested if we're only going to look for a very small percent of patients, but they're very important for those patients, of course, and we all have them. Yeah. Those. But I've learned a lot from listening to that this morning, you know, because we all have those patients, don't we? And um, CTDNAs, yeah, great. And don't give up hope, Declan. <laughs> <laughs> so we will have to invite you back to comment uh, when I really, uh, I suppose we'll have to have balance, won't we, when we invite Morgan on to uh, talk about this. Right. Maybe, maybe we need you back again. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Balancing out Morgan, that might be a tough job. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. That was fun. Any that was really fun. Yeah. Any other any other finishing comments you want to give us? Um, oh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having us on. I think get friendly with your medical oncologist when you have wonderful medical oncologists like yeah, you two are. It's, it's been it's it's fantastic. It's a, we Good are always friendly with our medical oncologists. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, that's all we have time for on this episode of GUcast. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, especially to uh, Tian and Rahul for coming to Australia this week. It's a long way down, but we really value having our international guests coming back and speaking to us. And we look forward to seeing you again soon in person somewhere. somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs>